This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. In 1879, the Postal Department introduced to India the humble postcard at a cheap rate of charana for anas it was in many respects a remarkable success 8 million postcards were sold in a year after introduction the next year 13 million postcards were sold by 1920 india's imperial post handled more postcards than letters the postcard immediately became the most popular means of written communications across british india and continued as such well after independence in 1947 but wait what happened while it was being introduced and how does it square up with the crash of 1865 this is bombay born episode 6 on history chatter and i'm on it by i'd been talking about the crash of 1865 during the last two episodes it is time i said in conclusion of the last episode to talk about how bombay came out of that disaster i say it came out post hest Let me explain what I mean. One of the salient aspects of the process of recovery was the appearance of a number of modern institutions. They brought stability to the city, which in turn contributed to the slow but steady emergence of Bombay city as we know it today. There were great leaps in the domain of communication. The most remarkable development in this context was the postal service something which which I had begun now the phrase post hest did not exist in bombay of the 1850s and 1860s nothing really like the postal services as we know it existed even in the late 1830s The government did not make any organized effort to develop the postal services until the 1850s. Well, I don't mean that people did not write or send letters. That's not my point. Private operators ran the service, but under the protection of the government. There was no such thing as a postage stamp either. which was introduced only in 1854 the inland mails even during the 50s were few and far between they were carried by stage like postal runners who charged in cash in the 50s a letter from calcutta to bombay cost 1 rupee per tola one from calcutta to agra cost 12 anas Let me tell you it was frightfully expensive and then comes the postcard but let me not jump the gun it was not as though the inland post did not exist 
The first elementary inland post in Bombay was set up as early as 1688. East India Company ordered its agents in Surat to build a post office in Bombay. Trustworthy private individuals were to carry and deliver letters in utmost secrecy. But there was no well-ordered or well-organized institution until the mid-18th century. The first post office of its kind was established in 1787. The company appointed an agent, not in India, but in Egypt, to supervise the exchange of letters between England and India. An annual armed ship would be sent from Calcutta, which collected letters from Madras and Bombay along the way, and finally headed for England. The route was by the Red Sea to Suez and then through Alexandria. A postmaster was appointed in Bombay in the same year. His job was to oversee a periodical service between Bombay and Madras. Incidentally, he received no salary, but a cash commission from those who sent the letters. A delivery fee of one anna was charged on every letter delivered at the post office. For onward transmission to Europe, a letter would cost two rupees, two letters four rupees, and three letters, but obviously six rupees. And we're talking about the late 18th and early 19th century. A regular general post office was finally put together by 1794. But uh, things had to be speeded up. The push came from a Frenchman. The Napoleonic Wars forced the company to quicken the process. By 1798, there was a monthly mail service between Bombay and London via the Persian Gulf. In 1834, the Bombay Post Office, and hear me out, this is kind of bizarre. In 1834, the Bombay Post Office began to charge native letters at a higher rate than European ones. And why did they do that? The ground was that they were written in smaller handwriting and on cheaper and therefore lighter paper. I'll shortly return to this point about uh, different kinds of paper being used by Europeans and Indians while writing or sending letters. More generally, the practice of charging payment for postage according to distance, when distance were largely unknown, ensured that the position of the humble postal clerk became, and I quote, a distinctly lucrative one, unquote. There was no general postal service until 1837, when Queen Victoria rose to the British throne. An act was finally passed that year, in 1837, for the establishment of public post office. Mind you, there was not yet a central postal service or any uniformity of the system, nor postage stamps. 
they were still a few years away. So what prompted the government of India to finally put together a well-organized postal service? As Britain consolidated its hegemony across India, the popularity of the native system of docks, when compared with the English dock, raised mounting official concern. There was alarm, serious alarm in official circles, that secrets probably were being licked. In companies' eyes, private ducks that ran across its territories posed a threat to its sovereignty and to its right to revenue. Their cheapness, speed and reliability challenged the status of British officials who were self-styled purveyors of enlightened scientific method. In 1830, the government of Bombay Presidency moved to outlaw private ducks on the ground that they drained, and I quote, public postage revenue, unquote, and second, on the ground that they encouraged smuggling and robbery. The company's overall suppression of indigenous and unofficial males comes in 1837, when a new postal act granted it the company the sole right to convey correspondence across its territory and then imposed a big, fat, hefty fine of 50 rupees on anyone found to have employed alternative services. By the middle of the century, that is 1850 plus, most private ducks had ceased their operation in British India. So um, there's a good deal of debate on whether the postal service had been a handmaiden of British imperialism in India. Patrick Joyce, for instance, wrote that postal services in India, ever since its beginning in 1854, had been, and I quote, poorly adapted to contemporary Indian culture and society, unquote, and predominantly shaped for British use. It created a system in, in which the various Indian vernaculars took a decided second place, which served to highlight, and I quote, the jarring distinction between the actual practice of the Indian post and the liberal values of unfettered and universal freedom of communication. Unquote. However, more recently, Mark Frost has argued, and I quote, that India from 1854 experienced through the development of the postal service an information explosion which affected educated Indian elites and semi-literate and illiterate Indian subalterns alike. Through the extension of postal services, the imperial state not only presented itself as a liberal institution, but out of necessity, 
were sometimes forced to behave like one, unquote. Having observed the success of Roland Hill's reforms in England, and I'm talking about Penny Post, the government of India proposed their introduction to the subcontinent. The company's court of directors in London initially refused on the grounds that the difference of circumstances in India, and I quote, seemed to render it doubtful whether the measure could be supported, unquote. So, what happened in a few years is what usually follows when a government has a problem. It appointed a commission. A commission for postal inquiry was finally set up in 1850. The Indian Postal Act of 1857, which implemented that commission's recommendation, set the uniform postage of a letter of up to one quarter of a tola at around one half anna. In effect, the rate for sending a letter from Calcutta to Bombay, which had previously been one rupee, at once became 32 times cheaper. In response, the official carriage of postal articles climbed rapidly by 76.9% between October 1854 and April 1856 and then by 95.25% between 1856 and 1857. And here, let us not ignore the disruption generated by the Indian Rebellion of 1857. And in 1857 and 58, the official carriage of postal articles climbed by a further 121.7%. That's between 1857 and 1858. You have a full-fledged rebellion in North India. And imagine the, the quantity of articles and letters transmitted through post still manages to grow by 130%. That's the sort of revolution the post and postal services had been bringing in India. And just as importantly, the new postal department of India immediately became a financial success. Let's try and measure the scale of the change. The scale of the change can be measured by the transformation in the appearance of the Bombay Post Office building since 1850. In 1850, it was a small ground floor building sandwiched between the custom house in the northeast and the dockyard in the southwest. Over the next 60 years, it had turned into and I quote, a stately and imposing structure near the junction of the Mint and the Bertle Frere Road. It changed its habitation twice in the meantime and shot out like a gigantic or mammoth edifice in the intervening years. In his youth, uh, rather in his adolescence, 
Din Show Watcher recalled that, and I quote, a ruddy looking Parsi with his white priestly turban, well proportioned and born to command and control, unquote, was the farmer of all inland letters on which he would receive a commission. Now, this man, I'll come to um, more about this man shortly. This man would sit squatted in his place of business at the fort, in the Bazargate Street to be precise. He'd sit squatted and examine his dark and bellow instructions to his clerks. Do you know what his name was? His name was, um, and this is amazing to say the least, Meherwanji Nauroji Postwala. Watcher offers a delightful account of postal services in Bombay before they were finally taken over by the state during the 1850s. First, he refers to the intimate connection between the literate priestly class among the Parsis and the early private players in the sector. Meherwanji Postwala, for instance, was closely connected with the family of Parsi priests um, who had set off the Daftar Akshara Press, which published Gujarati and Marathi translations of English novels. The post and the press in Bombay appeared to have walked in tandem, particularly in case of the Parsis who lived around the fort area. Now, letter writing, of course, was an exceptional activity in Bombay of the 1850s. There was no particular time for the post to arrive. It could arrive at any hour of the day. Morning, evening, night, afternoon, nobody had a clue. Similarly, those who sent letters usually would not know how long it would take for them to reach their destination. Hardly did anyone use full-scap papers or envelope, except for English firms and the Indian concerns which did business with them. The masses usually wrote in thin country papers. It was rolled like a cigar and closely gummed. One blank space on the surface served to write the address in Gujarati or Marathi. The address, of course, would be written in great detail since the senders were anxious that it could be lost in transit, which was a very regular affair. But it posed a great deal of problems to the clerks employed by the postal farmers like uh, Meherwanji Postwala. They often struggled to decipher these addresses. They were written in crooked letters. Roughly um, one in a hundred or probably much more could read or write those days. And writers or scribes, therefore, made a fairly prosperous living. Not just good, but prosperous living. But what about the peons, the guys who delivered the post? The postal delivery peon was little more than a common coolie and most often illiterate. 
If they managed to deliver letters nonetheless, it was because men from only a few select households or offices regularly sent or received letters. And it was not hard to remember those addresses. However, in case of addresses not already known, the illiterate postman often found it hard to trace them, which sometimes made for unwarranted comedies. These concerns often discourage their users to send parcels by post, even though that provision was actually available. The rate of loss in transit was so high that it was looked with suspicion and certainly considered unsafe. <laughs> the postal authorities had worked out elaborate rules on how to pack a parcel. For instance, the parcel had to be covered in white oilcloth and thoroughly sealed. But the workers often failed to carry out those instructions, since they could not read them in the first place. The transmission time could be excruciatingly slow. It took eight days from Eden to Bombay in fair weather and 16 or 17 days from Suez. That is in fair weather. In the monsoon, the Aden-Bombay travel time could be 16 or 17 days. In the monsoon, the struggle pilots of the boats which brought the mails from the ships to the shore, you know, their struggle had to be seen to be believed. The mails were landed at the jetty behind the post office. Once the Apollo Bandar was reclaimed, the mail started landing there until Ballard Pier was built in, in 1897. A number of logistical improvements were made in the 1880s, as uh, you can well anticipate. No public office had seen larger strides and vaster improvements than the general post office. Watcher wrote in 1914. The push really came by the late 1860s and 1870s with the opening of the Suez Canal. International trade immediately saw a jump and rapid strides were made also in steam navigation technology. Quite obviously, regular bi-monthly services was the need of the hour. As foreign trade grew in lips and bounds, the need for uh, speedier communication was increasingly felt and it could no longer be put off. And well-organized, timely and reliable weekly postal service could not be put off anymore. Now, the Chambers of Commerce raised a clamor to immediately bring forth such a service. The authorities in London were now forced to concede it. The staff of the mail company initially demanded more salaries, a raise in their pay. But uh, they were curtly told that other competitive navigation companies were ready and willing to carry the mails. There were high-pitched debates in the House of Commons on the amount of government subsidies. Eventually, the mail company had to back down. 
They enjoyed a subsidy of 70,000 pounds even by the last quarter of the 19th century. But by 1910s, it was reduced to nearly half of that figure. By 1910s, a meal from London to Bombay on an average took 13 or so days. The postal service had to shape up, particularly since undersea cables were led between Suez and Bombay in 1870. The landing of long-delayed and irregular mails in the antiquated docks stood out like a sore thumb in comparison with the telegraph and its, um, its marvelous speed, as you well know. There was no efficient sorting mechanism either at the post office, even, even during the mid-1870s. Hundreds of peons or office attendants from various trading concerns would crowd around the delivery windows, which were specially reserved at the post office. And they held their delivery tickets in their hand and anxiously kept a watch, waiting for the mails for their offices. Bombay and India were finally relieved when letters... Um, would finally come to hand within two hours of the landing. Watcher was grateful to the stalwarts of the Bombay Chamber of Commerce who had really made that possible. They were relentless in their lobbying and vast improvements were finally possible, made available in the postal services, in railways, docks and certainly in telegraph services. Given some time, at a later stage, I'll hopefully have an occasion to talk about all of these developments at greater length. But here, we've been talking only about the postal services. So Watcher wrote that these men, the stalwarts of the Bombay Chamber of Commerce, were the makers of New Bombay since the 1870s. He believed that without their persistent agitation, half the reforms in those services would not have come through. The Chamber of Commerce, and let me give you one more instance, pressed hard in the 1850s to open up Central India and Khandesh through the Great Indian Peninsular Railways to expand the cotton trade between the provinces and Bombay. The government originally wanted it uh, to be opened up through a different route, through Surat and others. As it turned out, that revision was a masterstroke and the cotton trade did indeed open up to an unprecedented level. One of the things Watcher writes is that this new route through Berar, Central Provinces and Khandesh actually made it possible for the government to facilitate the supply of um, adequate cotton to the Lancashire mills in the 1860s when they had been struggling in the wake of the American Civil War, a story that I've actually told you in great detail in the last two episodes. In this episode, I spoke at some length and with a great deal of detail uh, about the 
arrival and circulation and prosperity and indeed fantastic expansion of the post postal services since uh, the 1850s in the next four episodes i'll be talking about several other institutions and people and processes which turned bombay into the metropolis it was set to become by the early 20th century this is anirban and you just heard episode 6 of bombay bot